You're listening to the Just Sayin' Podcast, offering conversations with experts that will educate, inform, and entertain. Here's your host of the Just Sayin' Podcast, Charlie Cornaccio. Hi, everyone, and Happy New Year. I took a bit of a hiatus between Christmas and New Year's to celebrate with family. We had a great Christmas, despite the whole COVID social distancing thing and a great New Year's Eve celebration at this beautiful log cabin in Broken Bow, Oklahoma with family from Texas. Lots of laughs, good quality time. So we are here today to wrap up season two of the Just Saying podcast. It was another good season with a diverse group of expert guests, Just Saying. I hope you enjoyed our episodes and maybe learned something that could help you or someone that you know in the process, because that's what it's all about. So here's the recap as we go show by show. Episode one started off with Paul Tuttle of Orange County Choppers. Now I first met Senior when he was between Discovery and TLC, and I was pitching him on a concept show, similar to The Apprentice, a show he actually participated in as a celebrity contestant. But the premise of the show was to select a bunch of car and bike shop workers who would undertake different tasks and challenges in mechanics and also in community outreach and have Paul assess their accomplishments and then whittle down the contestants to a winner who would get a grand prize of money and an opportunity to build a bike with Paul Sr. and his crew and that bike would then become the contestant's own bike. Have you seen the show? No? That's probably because the concept didn't go anywhere. But some TV executive is out there right now going, hmm, that could work. Anyway, the few meetings I had with Paul Sr. gave me an opportunity to get to know who he really is. And I get it, you, you need conflict, you need a foil for those reality shows to work. And Paul played that part, but he is not that guy. Anyway, here's an excerpt from the episode where Paul talks about how becoming an overnight sensation can actually be overwhelming. I took my retirement money and, and built bikes in my basement. And I, I built four or five bikes down there, and then I brought them to Daytona, and uh, nobody knew who I was. And you know, when the magazines came around, uh, they seen the one particular bike that I had, and they actually put it on the cover uh, of a magazine. I was in business about maybe a year, and I had just put a website up, you know, like just a simple website. And um, Jesse James had done a show on the the West Coast, and um, they asked the producer to find somebody on the East Coast. And as he was looking through sites, um, he seen a picture of me. And he said, this guy looks like a bike guy, give him a call. <laughs> and then the rest was history. It, the show was an overnight success. And what happened is the, the doors opened and it just started flooding. So you never had any TV shows, experience. what was that like? It's kind of like you're getting bum-rushed, you know, and you really don't know what to think, uh, other than the fact that, uh, you know, you have an opportunity uh, to make a lot of money and, and do uh, a lot of things. So when the show was overnight success, you know, it was in the New York Post and it was all over the place, 
and the ratings were all over the place and everybody came to me. People wanted to do licensing deals. To, you know, so it automatically uh, came. And you know, at one time we had 75 different licenses um, from Christmas bulbs to uh, doorknobs to you know, car mats. Um, but you know, anything that you saw had an OCC uh, on it. And then I think that you, know, you, you get to a point where it's so overwhelming uh, you really have a hard, you know, in this steel shop, I can say, come on over here, take the welding test, and you pass, you pass, you fail, you fail. But, you know, I had to hire people uh, taking a risk, and, you know, uh, fortunately, uh, you know, I had some of the right people working for me because I really, I really wasn't able to do it all myself. Turns out that Paul and his crew are actually moving down to St. Petersburg, Florida taking their operation from Newburgh, New York, down to Florida. So we'll see what comes of that. Anyway, episode two of the Just Saying podcast was about parenting. A friend of mine, Brian Powers, and his associate, Darren McCarthy, have a podcast called Sound Foundations for Parenting. And I thought it would be really good to tap into their brain and their thought process about parenting during COVID and beyond. Darren brought great insight as a former teacher. Take a listen. We're always focused on the behavior. Kids crying, kids breaking something, kids screaming, you know, whatever it might be. Even if, even on the good side, you know, he's sitting in his seat, he's eating well, you know, whatever, you know, whatever yeah. it might be. It's always focused on the behavior. Right. Um, and if it's negative, it's typically there's a consequence, right? There's something we're going to do to kind of rectify the behavior. She, tups, she tops, uh, talks about uh, the antecedent. So what happened before that behavior happened, huh. right? I had a situation like a couple weeks ago, I was doing a Zoom meeting with a, with a, with a student. And um, the week before was a perfect meeting. Everything was awesome. You know, he was all in. And then this week was, was difficult. He's kind of like, oh, man, I don't want to do this. <laughs> you know, arms, I literally is like, man, I don't want to do this. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, it's, we kind of worked through it. And ultimately, I was looking for, to, when I talked to mom after it was all said and done, it was the antecedent. So what was the difference between last week and this week? And it came down to nutrition. He had gotten up really early that day. You know, he basically had very little for, for breakfast. He had like a, a donut or something. Something they grabbed to go. The antecedent in this case was nutrition or lack thereof. It's like the first thing that I thought of back in March was like, okay, now what? Right. <laughs> Like, well, how do I get, you know, I'm not organized, man. <laughs> it's like, you know, and it's like, it's like, you know, the reason I can go play volleyball with my kids, because I probably forgot what I was supposed to do. <laughs> but, but the bottom line is, is like, I said, okay, how do we get everything we need to get in and get organized and get it all planned out so that I can be uber planned so that everything kind of fall into place like normally, mm -hmm. right? You over plan so you can fall into a normal activity, right? So that correlates to whether you're a hybrid or whether they're going to school part-time or whatever they may be doing, you've got to get your ducks in a row. Right. And, and you know, the other piece that I, I, I recommend that, that we're also doing is we're working on core, core underlying challenges, right? So everybody's so caught up in curriculum mm -hmm. and just getting good grades and everything else. But there's underlying things that if you work on them, they're going to help your kids throughout their whole lives, right? So now is the time to do like one of our, one of our um, program things that we offer on the website is called Radish Kids. 
And so my daughter literally, she texted me while we were on. She's like, my, my box came. And Radish Kids is a recipes that the kids do. And then they send a, like a little utensil or they send, you know, an apron or different things. And the kids, it comes to them, so they get excited. So, um, so what are they getting? They're getting nutrition. And if you're doing it, like true homeschoolers will start, will make that into a math and science lesson. Mm. Right? And that's a little bit tricky for parents that haven't done it before. But what are you getting out of it? You're getting engagement, you're getting yeah. good nutrition, and you're getting some degree of some kind of curriculum. Right. And that's the way the, my, my mindset works. And as a parent, you're so focused on, okay, let's get them on the video, let's do the homework, and move on. But mm -hmm. do you have an opportunity here to help the entire family get organized, do the right thing, um, and then the homework and everything becomes easier? If I had to choose a favorite episode for the season, episode three would be in the top five for sure. This was an episode where a friend of mine, former bandmate of mine, Gene Moore, discusses what happened when Ace Fraley, the guitarist for Kiss, used the song that Gene wrote and never told Gene or compensated him until Gene had to sue him. Let's listen to some of that episode. And then I have a follow-up story that I wanted to tell you about you'll never believe who watched the entire episode and then called Gene on the phone after watching it. And no, it wasn't Ace Fraley. First, here's Gene Moore. You know, playing along to all the Kiss albums and all those great songs, you know, that were that had so many great chords that you could wrap your head around as a beginner guitar player. Um, songs like Cold Gin and and strutter, um, you know, uh, firehouse. Oh, you know, these are such great chords to learn on guitar. So I was always, you know, very aware of Ace Freely growing up. You know, he was one of my heroes as much as, you know, Dwayne Allman and Jimmy Page. And um, he was right there, you know. Okay, so flash forward, um, I'm a session guitar player. I'm, what, maybe 20, 25 years old, somewhere around there. And this was just another date. You know, these were some really heavy hitters in this room. We finally took a break after a few hours. And my friend Bill came out and said, Gene, I, I want you to meet somebody. And uh, he pulled me into the control room. And there was Ace. And he goes, Gene, this is Ace Freely. And I'd never met him. I'd never even seen him without his makeup. Oh, right. So it was like, wow, this is Ace Freely. You know, it was just, it was a huge moment you know, for me as a, as a guitarist, you know, meeting him in person. So after the session was over, I go in the control room, we're listening to some of the uh, mixes back, and, and he's, he was really nice. He said, Gene, you know, I really liked your guitar playing. Um, he goes, um, maybe you want to jam sometime. We talked on the phone, he gave me his address. So, you know, that was a pretty cool moment. I'm pulling into you know, Ace Freely's driveway. He was totally cool. It wasn't like I walk into, you know, this big party going on and right, yeah. this whole rock star thing. It wasn't that. It was, you know, just come on in, let's hang and talk and play. And he played me a cassette of a couple of like licks he was working on. And uh, he said, you know, maybe you want to write something together sometime. And I was like, yeah, sure, absolutely. You know, I, I was a songwriter at that time. I was, I was used to writing. I was used to recording. And um, one of the songs just clicked instantly. You know, like I was like, 
whoa, there's a lyric. Oh, there's a line. You know, I have words. I have lyrics. I have a melody. I have chords. I sketched the whole thing out front to back. I even but, did a solo. But he, he only gave you a couple of chords, right? Is that, did, yeah. It was so like, that was the genesis of it? If you know the song, it was just da 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 He called it Quick Lick. I remember that was the name of the song on the tape. I just remembered that. Quick Lick. That was it. (laughs) Called him up and said, okay, you know, I I think I got something. He goes, all right, come on back over. Let's see what you got. So I go back over and he puts the cassette in his big stereo system in his living room and cranks it up and I'm sweating bullets. I'm just like, oh my God, is this really happening? You know, I didn't know what to make of his reaction because he was like, yeah, it's pretty good. (laughs) <laughs> that's it I'm no like, emotion no. not great um <laughs> you know he goes yeah it's okay he goes uh, yeah let's let's jam a little bit and so we we played a little bit more and uh you know he's, he was just a very nice cat he was like you want to shoot some pool wow like, yeah sure so you know i'm shooting pool then i'm just i'm just trying to keep up you know he's my right he's my guitar hero i'm just like just yeah. don't say anything stupid you know <laughs> a year goes by and here's the big moment it's like three in the morning. I'm, I'm living with Lisa and we're asleep. Three o'clock, lights are out, dark, and the phone rings. And um, it's never good when the phone rings at three in the morning. Uh, so I pick up and it's my friend Doug. And he's screaming in the phone, turn on MTV, turn on MTV. And I'm like, what, what, turn on MTV, why? And, you know, my Lisa's hitting me like, get, tell him you'll talk to him tomorrow. What's the big deal? You guys in your music, you know, like. <laughs> right, yeah, right. <laughs> Some videos on, you got to see it. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, he's, but Doug is flipping out. He's, he's beside himself. So I'm like, oh, right. So I get out of bed and I turn on MTV and, oh, my God, there it is. There's the song. Insane. Insane. There's a video. There's the song. <laughs> Like word for word, note for note. I was like, oh my God, is this, is this happening? So I started to think, wow, you know, you hear all these things about the music business. Here we go. You know, wow, I'm, I'm in it now. Right. So then uh, a, a long time after that, I was at my in-law's house and the phone rang and it was Ace. He called me at my in-laws' house. I don't know how he found the number. He said, uh, hey, you know, the record company really loves that song, and uh, we're going to release it as the, the single, you know, off this new uh, CD that's coming out. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, so Ace, you know, what do I do? What's the, what's the move? And he goes, well, um, I'm playing at um, uh, the Meadowlands uh, tomorrow night. I'm warming up for Iron Maiden. He goes, why don't you come down and then we'll talk about it. You stay after the show, come backstage. I'll leave some passes for you. So, okay. So after the concert's over, I show my passes to the, you know, to get backstage. We go backstage. Lisa and I are hanging out with Iron Maiden. I don't know who they are, but you know, I'm just waiting for Ace. I'm waiting to, you know, sign whatever contracts we need to sign or talk about what we need to talk about. Right. But he never shows. What? 
And so I asked one of the security guys, is Ace coming? And, and he goes, no, Ace is gone. I'm like, oh, no. He goes, yeah, I, I, I think, he, I'm thinking this out loud. I think him and his wife had split. And that night she came to the show. And I think they kind of reconciled and he left with her. So this friend of mine had some ideas of how to get around some of the red tape and go right directly to the record company and, and get in it. You know, all we're trying to do is get an accounting yeah. of whatever money was due to me. If it was zero, it's zero, but you know, it would be nice to know. Let's make this legit. You know, yeah. this song has showed up on three, maybe even four records now, live DVDs, who knows what else, you know? So can we just do something? Wouldn't you pay this kid something just to get him out of your life? <laughs> <laughs> and so what was the end result? Was the end result that you finally got your due? Or? You know, we got something, you know, because I didn't, I didn't pay for my lawyer. You know, the, the, he, he gets it on commission. You know, he takes the commission of whatever settlement we got. And, um, and you know, it just felt crappy. The whole thing just felt crappy to have to do that to Ace. Yeah, right. And I still feel that way, you know, even after all these years, I just, I just wish we could talk about it. And so, so you, you did resolve it. You are, or were getting royalty checks. You still getting any royalty checks? Yeah. I get a dollar 25 a, a quarter. I think something like that. <laughs> Wonder why a website designer. A dollar 25 a quarter. Yeah, I open the statement. It's this big, thick packet of papers, and I have to open the whole thing, and it's such a waste. <laughs> and I have to deposit a dollar twenty-five. I feel like Jerry Seinfeld when he <laughs> gets the uh, super terrific happy hour checks. <laughs> so Gene recently called me to tell me that he received a call from Sebastian Bach of Skid Row. Turns out Sebastian was also duped by Ace and Bach wanted to find the name of Gene's lawyer. Amazing, right? Turns out Sebastian Bach is getting a tour together. He's got some dates lined up. He asked Gene, in fact, if Gene had any stuff he wanted to pass by Sebastian Bach as original material. We'll keep you posted if there's a sequel in the making. The next episode featured Jody Krangle, a voiceover professional who I met at a podcaster's virtual convention. Jody had some great advice for small business owners with tips on how to use audio for branding. Sound is a quick way to time travel because when you hear a sound that you recognize from your childhood, for instance, and it could be something as simple as the creak of a floorboard, and, and suddenly you remember walking through your childhood home, you know, at a particular moment, mm -hmm. like you're just, you're there. It's so powerful that you're actually there. And scent does the same thing. Oh, yeah. That's how we know those two are our most powerful senses. Mm -hmm. And and beyond that, it's it's really strange, but they have recently figured out that there's a brain connection between our our scent and our hearing between those two senses. Interesting. Uh, on your website, you have some really good tips to use if you're a business owner. Tip number one, we'll go through these and then you, you could explain it for our audience and we will give the website in a minute <laughs> so you can also uh, go to the website. But tip number one is to decide who you want to reach. 
Yeah, that's the usual basics of marketing of any kind or, or branding for that matter. You have to know who your avatar is. So you really do need to know who it is you're reaching out to, who your ideal client is. Mm-hmm. And once you figure that out, then it kind of all falls into place. Yeah. But I take it in an audio context. <laughs> yeah, right, right. All right, number two is to find your why. Yeah, why are you doing what you're doing? Uh, this is another um, uh, context question in the idea of why someone would start a podcast. What do you want to get out there? What What is your reason for doing what you're doing? It's not only to make money. <laughs> I mean, that may be part of it. <laughs> Ain't that true, sister? <laughs> yeah, that may be part of it. But but if you're truly trying to reach people and get a message to them that they that you feel they need to know, then what is that message and why is it important to you? Why should it be important to someone else? Yeah, right. Tip number three, decide what media you want to focus on first. What do you mean by media? Yeah, well, if it's a commercial or it's a corporate narration that sits on your website or if it's an ad in streaming media or on a podcast or if it's in social media in the form of a video or if you want to do a live stream, there are so many different ways of reaching your potential audience. But when you decide how you're going to do that and where you're going to do it, then it depends. That's, that's going to allow you to figure out what you need to sound like to do that. So do you need background music? Do you need good uh, recording equipment for video or not for video? Do you need a sound-treated environment? Do you need sound effects? There's all sorts of different things that you would need audio-wise to make that work. And you need to think about that. Right. And it doesn't have to be you. It could be who you hire. Because branding and marketing are separate things. Who you are is your brand. But marketing, you're marketing to the people who want what your brand can deliver. Well, with everything going on in 2020, it was a challenge for most of us to find happiness. So I reached out to an author friend of mine, Carol Pesci, who writes about being happy And found being happy is not only a conscientious decision, but there are also specific things that we can do to ensure that we experience happiness. I I grew up always being a kind of a confident person. Even as a child, I was the youngest of three, but always like the go-getter and the strong one. Um, And I always viewed myself as a very happy and strong person. And... um, went through the normal thing, the dating, got married, um, took my marriage very seriously. I wanted to be married one time, um, took my role as a wife very seriously, making him happy. I invested a lot in that role. And lo and behold, I um, walked up behind him one day and heard him telling somebody else that he loved her. And, you know, you say something brings you to your knees. I literally ran away and fell to my knees and had to have friends lift me up on either side to carry me away. I was, I was really, really, devastated and scared um, and angry and pathetic, please choose me stage. You know, I was just, <laughs> that's, that's where I was. And I was asked that this, why me? What did I do to deserve this? I was still for a while trying to work it out. So two things, Charlie, came to my mind very early on in the process. The first thing was what had happened to me was not going to define my future. Who I chose to be in relationship to it 
how I chose to respond to it and see it were going to dictate the, the future course of my life. And first and foremost, I chose not to hurt him back deliberately. All of my friends, well-meaning, they were like, you know what I would do? <laughs> you know, we've all, we've all been through that, right? It was like, oh boy, I would do this to get him back. And I'm like, you know, nothing about, even though you could say it's deserved, nothing about that made me feel better. So number one, I realized I didn't want to hurt him back. Number two, what I wanted was to focus on what I wanted my life to look like, not why me, what's wrong with me, what did I do to deserve this? All normal stuff. And I went through that for a while. I started saying, and I can remember saying to people, and I would literally hold my hands out like this. I said, you know, my whole world is in my hands right now. Mm. I get to create it as I want it. Where do I feel I settled? What do I want? What's going to make me happy? And I, and I started asking, completely changing the questions that I asked myself. And I started getting all new answers. We have so much wisdom within us, Charlie. If we settle down, quiet down, and just start asking ourselves the right questions, we'll be amazed what we have within us. Happy Bitch was the first book, right? Came out in yep. 2010? Yep. Okay. Yep. So that discusses your journey and getting rid of the baggage that one might hold on to. What would you say would be the most important chapter of that book? Oh, probably the first one. First and foremost, chapter one is that no matter where you are, no matter your perceived flaws, no matter your past that you may think put you at a disadvantage, the things that have happened to you that you didn't choose, you deserve to be happy and you can be happy because nothing else I said after that would matter if I didn't tell you first, I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I do. I do care. But I'm saying regardless of that, you deserve to be happy and you can be happy. Give me, uh, if you could, before we leave, uh, just some quick tips that people can use in their daily life just uh, you know, as they go through and maybe get bogged down in their mind to kind of free themselves up a bit. Sure. The quickest way, if you're feeling low or down, or you realize you're in your head too much, <laughs> I always described 100% of the world right there, um, <laughs> is um, to, to number one, get out of your head and do something kind for somebody else. That's the fastest route to feeling better about yourself. When you put your focus on somebody else and you say, what can I do that will lift somebody else's day up? I don't care whether you know them, whether you don't know them, uh, that could be through a text, somebody you haven't talked to in a while, or somebody you do talk to on a regular basis saying, I just want to you know how, how much I appreciate having you in my life and everything you've done for me. Um, whether it's paying the toll for the person behind you. But we all have it within us, Charlie, and it doesn't cost a dime to be more compassionate and kind to other people. That's the fastest route to getting your energy and your sense of self and your confidence and feeling good um, in a better place. In episode six of season two, I shared my story of how I became a TV sportscaster. It was an unconventional path, to say the least. No college degree, no dreams of being a sportscaster as a young child. Uh, don't get me wrong. I love sports. I played them. I followed them. But I always really wanted to be a professional player. I never thought of being a professional sportscaster. So anyway, there I was making the most of an opportunity when it presented itself. And in this episode, I provide five things that every person should consider when going for a new job or a new position. While I was the manager at this warehouse, uh, I used to create safety and orientation videos for the staff using a video camera and a deck to deck 
editing method that I jury rigged. It was crude, but effective. And I really liked the production and editing aspect of that task. So when I got laid off, I started looking through the classifieds for the next job and came across a job posting bold lettering for a videotape editor job. It just jumped off the page at me. And it turns out I got the job, but it was only part-time from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. And the job was a commercial reel editor, which means back in the day, way before digital, we used to get a printout of the TV commercials from the ad sales department and had to assemble 30 second commercials onto a three quarter inch tape cassette. And then those commercial blocks would play across the different channels of the cable network, including the local news program that the station was producing. So it wasn't a full-time gig, but I figured that you got to start somewhere. And I started that job in January of 1989 and in March of that same year, a coworker came into my editing booth with a job post that, posting that she pulled off the bulletin board. And she handed it to me and said, you should go for this. Turns out the news department was looking to hire its first ever sports anchor. So three months into this mundane job of editing commercials onto a reel in the back corner of a back room late at night, I had an opportunity to audition for a newly created nightly sports anchor position. Pretty cool, huh? Again, right place, right time. So I filled out my application, brought it into the program manager. So he scheduled my audition, which would consist of me sitting on the news desk in the studio and reading from a teleprompter. I had never read from a teleprompter before. And the program manager it told me that the competition would be very stiff because all of the local newspaper sports writers and radio guys would be auditioning as well. In my case, that meant practice. But just how do you practice what you don't know? And how do I do it without access to a teleprompter? In my acting days, I used to pick up a trade paper called Backstage where all the theater, film, and TV auditions were listed. And I remembered seeing an ad towards the back of that trade paper where some woman was promoting her TV coaching business. So I picked up the latest edition of Backstage, which I hadn't looked at for years. And luckily, she was still advertising her service. So I called the woman. Her class is focused on TV performance using a teleprompter. Perfect. And she taped each lesson so we could critique it afterwards. Also perfect. In the meantime... I started coming to work wearing a jacket and a tie. So from 8 to 4 p.m., I worked at a day job and then traveled an hour north to get to the 5 to 10 p.m. editing job. And it's rare that a nighttime editor comes in wearing a jacket and a tie, but I wanted them to see me looking the part of a TV anchor before I actually auditioned. When I would arrive for my night shift, the news crew was scurrying around the halls, getting ready to do their live broadcast at 5.30. And I made sure that I was hanging out by the copier during that time, looking over my sheet with my tie and my jacket. My audition day comes. Formal newscast is over. The anchors clear the set. They asked me to go up on the set, sit on the chair at the anchor desk. And it was a very different view than my training in the basement of that brownstone with a couple of hanging work lights there was a whole grid of lighting above me and way beyond the cameras, the three cameras that were pointing at me, there was all dark space. It, it was cavernous. 
So they load the script for the sports segment that the news anchor had just read in the uh, live newscast, and they ask me to read it. So here we go. Camera operator Marty Glombotsky, who later taught me so many neat tricks for shooting video and editing my stories, pulls his head away from the back of the camera, and he raises his hand, and he points to me as if, go. So it's on. <sighs> I read through the prompted script. I stop at the end and I smile into the camera. And Marty sticks his head out from around the camera and he goes, you nailed it. So I got the job as the news station's very first sportscaster, which led to a half hour sports show as well as my nightly sportscasting anchoring duties, which led to me being the color analyst and play-by-play -play sportscaster for many of our local pro college and high school teams with live broadcasting, which led to speaking engagements, which led to work at bigger networks, which led to becoming the owner and general manager of my own independent channel called Sports One that was seen in a quarter of a million homes, which led to becoming the executive producer of a magazine show in New York City called Neighborhood Journal, uh, numerous industry awards, two Emmy nominations, an adjunct professor position at a local community college, and so much more. And all because, one, I looked for teachable moments. Two, I didn't let fear and failure get in the way. Three, I acted confident. I dressed the part. And be prepared for the opportunity when it arises. And if you do those things, you may surprise yourself that you actually find exactly where you want to be. In episode seven, I revisited Carol Pesci, who I found out in our last conversation had become a publisher, and she shared ways how anyone can get their story out into the world in book form by sidestepping the need for a literary agent, avoiding unjust rejection from publishing houses, and never coming face-to-face -face with the myriad of publishing obstacles that can really dishearten even the most determined writer. I kind of feel like it was the universe kept knocking on my door saying, Carol, you're supposed to be doing this. Carol, you're supposed to be doing this. Carol, you're supposed to be doing this. Because when I put out my first book, even after Happy Bitch first came out, I had so many people, and you were one of them, Charlie, who would come to me and, and, and say, oh, I have an idea for a book. I've always wanted to write a book, but I don't know where to begin. I don't know how to get published. And I would just say, go write it. I will help you. We'll figure it out. Don't let that fear of the unknown stop you. Just go write it. Because there is no person who has ever lived, is ever living now, or will live in the future who can tell your story. First option is the traditional method, which is to go to a publishing house, say it's a penguin or hay house or a random house, and try to convince them or get them to pick your book up. And when Happy Bitch was in the works, getting close to being finished, I had a, a friend who was somewhat of a celebrity, I guess, who had a direct connection to a high person at, at a, maybe it was Random House, I'm not even sure, got me a phone call with one of the top people, told him about my book. He said, you know what? Your idea sounds like it has legs, but you got to go get an agent. I can't even talk to you if you don't have an agent. Oh. I joke, Charlie, that in a future life, I want to come back as a literary agent because they have the world by the balls <laughs> because they probably pick up 1% of what comes across their desk and reject probably 99%. And the fact of the matter is, they don't know. They don't always know. And J.K. Rowling's is one of the prime examples of look at the, how amazing her creative work is um, and how many times she was rejected. 
So bottom line, the process takes years. Rejection rate is really high. Um, and you've now entered two layers of people who need to get paid besides you. Your agent wants to get paid. Publisher needs to get paid. That's what they do. And you want to get paid. So in the end, should you be successful and it's years down the road before your word gets out there, you're getting pennies per book, most likely. Option number two, which is the direction that I have gone for myself, is to, is to self-publish. Self-publishing is absolutely the best way to go for somebody who wants to get their book out there. And I'm going to tell you the reasons why. And the best platform to do that used to be CreateSpace. Now it's Kindle Direct Publishing. You can, for virtually no money, get your book published and available in paperback on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com through Kindle Direct Publishing. Almost all books sold are sold online anymore. Very rare that people go into a bookstore, especially now, uh, to look for and purchase a book. Now, for people who are resourceful, and everybody I talk to, I tell them the same thing, go check it out. Do your research because you may very well be able to completely do this on your own. You'll need to be able to design and format your cover or have someone who knows how to do that for you. You'll need to design and format your interior. If you are done writing your book, it's edited, it's clean, you get it up there, your book can probably be available in a matter of a week or two on amazon.com. You get paid probably, depending on your book, three to five dollars in royalties per book. It's print on demand, so you do not need to invest in inventory. Person goes to Amazon, they find my book, Hello Beautiful, they order it, it gets printed and shipped, I get a royalty. Mm. And at the end of every month, that gets direct deposited into my account. Can you give us a, um, a range of what something like that costs? Is there a range? Sure. I, I quoted somebody a rough idea, uh, believing their book was around 30,000 words. It ended up being about 50 to 60,000 words, which is a lot more work for me for creating the interior. So it does depend on the number of words your book is. And certainly when I did the children's books that are 24 pages and a few words on each one, it's significantly less than a full-fledged 80,000 word memoir. Mm -hmm. I would say roughly $1,500 to $3,000 depending on, on the size of your book. That's it? And yeah. Wow. <laughs> Just go do it. Who so else nice. is going to? Mm -hmm. Who else could tell your story and share what it is you have to share other than you? There's nobody who's going to do it for you. Episode eight was about changing your habits to change your life. I talked with Anthony Serino, a habit modification expert, about how to change your life by changing your habits. It sounds simple, and it really is if you can recognize exactly what needs to be changed. Anthony shows us how it's done. Everybody that comes to me, I find is doing it backwards. And I, I did it this way. When I've tried to get transformation in my life or change, I was working backwards. I kept saying, you know, if I had more money, if I had more time, if I had more energy, if I had this, if I had that thing, then I could do this thing and then I'd be successful. Then I'd be happy. Then I'd, then I'd be wealthy. That's backwards. Cause how, how many times have people tried to change what they're doing habits, right? And it doesn't work. 
That's because it's it's more than our habits. Because if we're not the type of person, if you're not the type of person to do those type of things or have those type of things, you'll never have or do those things because you're not that type of person. So all that comes down to your identity. So hence the name, the identity factor, and really looking at who you are, the stories you tell yourself. You know, some people say, "Oh, it's really difficult for me to do X, Y, Z," or you know, I'm this way because my parents did this. Or, you know, I'm like this because an ex did that. That's just a story you're telling yourself. Whether or not it's true in the past is one thing. Now it doesn't have to be. Episode nine was a fun one. I received a letter in the mail stating that I owed $24,000 to the IRS. Now, I know I didn't owe $24,000 to the IRS. So I thought I would call them and see what it's all about. Turns out it was a scam. Uh, my name's Gavin, G-A-V-I-N. Gavin, where are you? Okay, so, uh, well, we're a nationwide company, but I'm in downtown Los Angeles right now. Because of COVID, we all sort of came together at the home office uh, just because we can't have people walking in. This isn't Gavin around, Gavin know. Newsom, is it? Is Gavin Newsom? I'm absolutely not. No, sir. Somebody named Gavin absolutely. Newsom in, uh, in California. Yeah. yeah, no, no, I'm not him at all. I heard, and, and it's it's saying that the balance has to be paid in full. Um, I would say take a breath on that one. I, you know, it's unlikely you'd be able to pay this in full. It sounds like so. No, you know, just so you're aware, uh, because of our bar certifications and what are called cash numbers, we have a special practitioner line directly to the IRS. So if I owe this money to the IRS. How come the IRS hasn't contacted me? How come I got something? Uh, normally they would have. That's why it's confusing to me. Because I was told. You want to jump on a call with the IRS? What'd say? You can find out. You want to jump on a call with the IRS? We can find out right now. Yeah. What sure. they're claiming. The rules of dealing with the IRS. We don't. We're not there to negotiate. We're not there to admit anything. We're not there to tell them we're sorry or tell our side of the story. Uh, and we're definitely never there to argue with them. Uh, we're just there to listen to what they have to say. Whatever questions you have, just write them down, okay? And, and then when, once we hang up, um, I'll just call you right back and we can go over that together. Okay, I can translate for you because we'll be talking IRS speak. Um, hello, my name is Miss Kelly. My ID number is 1000-151041. Can you briefly tell me the purpose of your call today? Uh, yes, sir. My name is Gavin. Tax practitioner, calling with uh, for a verbal disclosure with a client with 2848 unfiled. Name is Charles. He's on the line with us currently. Um, can you help us with a verbal disclosure, please? Yes, I can. Thank you, sir. Um, so, do you give me all consent to ask you these questions while your power attorney is on the phone with you? Charles, hello? Hello? Gavin. Hi, uh, Charles. Can you hear him? Gavin, I wasn't supposed to. I'm not supposed Can to you hear me? I'm not supposed to talk, you said. You said I wasn't supposed to talk. Oh, no, no. I just, <laughs> no, you can answer him. He's going to ask you some questions and verify you're you. And can I have the private social security number, please? Wait, don't you have my social security number? Is, uh, this is the address. Yeah. yeah. You'll, they'll check your, your uh, address and probably your social, maybe your date of birth, okay? They'll have some questions for you about this. Yeah, so but they can verify that you're you. But wait, hold on. Hold, whoa, hold, hold, wait, well, hold it. If 
sir. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak with a client really quickly here. I, I think maybe he's a little nervous. I was, listen, yeah. listen, um, Gavin. Sure. I was, I was told uh, by my kids uh, that, that I should never give my social security number over the phone. To any, oh, to uh, any. You know, normally I would agree with you 100%. I mean, but this is literally a law enforcement agency that was pulling up your records. So they keep track of you with your social. Well, um, then, then they must. That's how they know who you are. Then they must have it. I mean, they don't even know who they're talking to yet. Um, right. They just know me and, and our company because of the bar certifications and the CAF number. So when you hear me plugging in numbers, those are numbers that you can only get if you're uh, tax lawyers. I think maybe we're misunderstanding the, the goal here. Um, the, the point of being on with the IRS is to find out exactly how much you do owe them right now and why. And has any of this expired? Um, why, are, you know, why was this lien filed? Do we even know? So that's, that's what that call was about. Um, not to write them a check for $24,000, that would be irresponsible for everybody, even if you had it sitting there in a bank account. Um, Typically, somebody will say, can I have the last four numbers of your social? Because they already have my number. And then I give it to hey, them. Hey, Charles, uh, listen, I want to help you out here. I realize that's not going to happen. And to be honest with you, I've missed calls from a few of my clients who I really have been trying to find some time for. I'm going to let you call the IRS. Give me a call back, okay? I've got one calling in right now. I don't want to be rude, but I, I do want to take her call, okay? So, you, so, you, so you're not going to help me? Episode 10 is a heartwarming story featuring Frank and Peggy Viola, gold star parents who lost their son in 2013 in Afghanistan. Now, his loss could have torn the family apart, but to the credit of parents Frank and Peggy and their daughter, Christina, they got through those absolute dark days and heartbreak by setting up the Staff Sergeant Alex Viola Memorial Foundation, which has donated over half a million dollars to the Special Warrior Foundation and the Green Beret Foundation, which helps families of veterans in need. Here's their story. When, when we first got word about losing Alex and um, having to go through that whole horror at the beginning, um, it was clear in our minds that we felt like we wanted to do something for the positive, for the good. We just had to do that to get out of the dark place. Peggy and I, Christina, we, we all sat together and we wanted to do something. And um, uh, Alex and I were both, uh, our, 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 you know, he, we were both car nuts. And so we attended so many different car shows together. Uh, there were weekend events that we would go away. So he was my, my right hand. It just, the light bulb went off. We said, why don't we do a car show? And last year we had nearly 400 cars, which at $20 a car adds up to, you know, quite a bit of money. And, uh, and then of course, all the apparel that we sell, the auctions, all the other things. We, last year we generated uh, over uh, $100,000. We get so many people wanting to help that we literally have to put them kind of on like a waiting list kind of thing. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, first of all, we have, you know, a great, family. We support each other, even though we're kind of all over the country. Everybody comes together to support this cause. 
aunts, uncles, grandparents, cousins, and that means a lot to us. It's a it's such a, a positive atmosphere and a positive cause and a positive few days. And you've got you've got a cast of thousands. We'll show the picture of all of the volunteers. It's a small army that work on this. And Charlie, to uh, you know, just to expand on what Peggy was saying. It's become much more than a fundraising event. It's now become a reunion for several different groups, not only family, but we also have uh, a reunion for Alex's friends, his high school friends, his college friends, and his military friends. So all I retired a few years ago, and now it's become a reunion for all my ex, you know, uh, my former, uh, my peers that, uh, that I've known for so many years. So now we all get together. And like I said, this event has become uh, much more than just a fundraiser. It's right. become a reunion for several different groups. And one day I get a call from a gentleman that worked from, from American Airlines and he wanted to meet with me. And so we met for breakfast and he said, you know, we normally don't do local events. Our events are usually either international or national events. And the, the gentleman that, that helped us was former army and uh, he read about Alex. He, he actually said he had come to the funeral. And so I guess there was, um, you know, he had a soft spot in his heart for what we were doing. And he uh, convinced, uh, I guess, his superiors at American that we want to do this event. And so American Airlines uh, became a sponsor a few years ago. And the first thing they did was they, they, they pay for all the air travel for the uh, soldiers coming in. Wow. Uh, one of our, the, one of the staples of our event is the, our judges. The judges are all Green Berets, uh, most of which served with Alex uh, in Afghanistan and then others that just were friends with him. And that basically was the qualifications that they set forth themselves that you have to have known Alex or served with him. And so American Airlines was gracious enough that they would fly the soldiers in every year. So having the car show for me is a time when people will talk about Alex. They'll say his name. Um, we learned so much about Alex that we didn't know, like how he was with his friends and how he was with the military and, and people that we never knew he knew when they would come up and tell us stories. And it, it was of comfort to us. And, and then, you know, that, that really meant a lot to me, plus the fact that we're able to, you know, donate in his memory and then actually kind of support other families going through the same thing that we're going, you know, through. It's just a, a, a good feeling, you know, um, at this time of year, because this is the time of year that, we, that we, he was killed. So it's a difficult time for us, but having family, friends, the city people, neighbors, people who don't even know there, all gathering together for the same cause. It's, it's, it's just, to me, a good feeling and it's, it's comforting and it just gets us through a rough time. And we're just so grateful. I had mentioned in that episode that Alex was my nephew, Peggy, Frank, Christina, and the family are such an inspiration to the rest of us. And, uh, they're doing great work. Here's the website in case you would like to check out what they're doing and help in any way that you can.
Now, in episode 11, I met up with Lauren Moore, a cruise ship entertainer who shared some interesting tips from an insider about things that you should do when planning your cruise and then other things that you might not notice while you're on the cruise. I didn't know much about the cruise world. I got to their headquarters, their like rehearsal headquarters in Tampa. It's just like this massive warehouse where they have like this huge room full of costumes. There's multiple ships rehearsing there. So it was kind of a whirlwind and we were doing a brand new show. So it was pretty intense. Typically, you know, a cruise performer will mm -hmm. just go on the ship and go. But yeah. your ship wasn't even built yet. No. Yeah. So, so it was brand, brand new, brand new. Not only that, but the shows were new as well. So I was in two shows. I was in a show called Havana and I was in a show called Prohibition and both shows. It was the first time that they were ever done on a ship. And then we also had Jersey Boys on the ship and Jersey Boys. This is the first time that they were ever going to do the production on a cruise ship. A lot of people don't realize maybe that you go to see a show on a cruise ship. It's not like seeing a show off-Broadway, on-Broadway, in your regional theater, because mm. the ship is moving. Yeah. <laughs> so, that, so that means the, the, the props, the st stage scenery is, is moving if it's not locked down. Was yours locked down? Yeah. Did, so did it, did it move during a performance? It did. It did. So we had these like <laughs> massive staircases that I remember more than one occasion, because we were on there for, for months. We we hit some rough terrain and literally if those staircases weren't like really locked in, they would start shifting like across the stage. There were times where I had to stand on the stairs and I would literally feel it moving. And they told me to sit down. They're like, if that ever happens, cause like you'll fall off the stairs, just like sit down, like crouch down. <laughs> it was, it was so bizarre. I've never had to experience something like that. The ship is very mapped out. You know exactly where things are there are arrows pointing and anyone who's there can tell you where things are when you go underneath it gets very confusing so there's a there's a path called i-95 where it's just underneath it's the crew area so it's just one long hallway underneath which is where they store the luggage and so you can use that to get from the front of the ship to the back of the ship i mean like the cruise industry when they tell you that the guest come f comes first, they're not exaggerating. Like the guest always comes first and they will do whatever they need to do right. on the ship to make the guest more comfortable. What are a few tips that people could learn from you uh, being an insider of things they should know if they're just going on a cruise for the first time? I mean, doing as much research before you get on the ship, knowing the ports that you're going to, knowing kind of like what restaurants are on there, what excursions are on there. They now have like on the wall, there's these touch screens where you can make reservations for everything on the ship. And I was like, you got to do that right away. Because once you are settled into the cruise, you forget about it. And you think like, oh, I'll just like make a reservation the night before. On a cruise, there's so many people who want to do that, that you just, if you want to get your spot, like right away making those reservations. And just also like, what do you want on your experience? Like, do you want to go to restaurants? Do you want to just spend the whole time in your room, like ordering room service? That's cool too. I think it's just kind of like preparing yourself for once you step on setting your week and mm. then you won't have to worry about it anymore.
where is the best place on the ship to have your room? Yeah. So if you get seasick and emotion sickness, um, your best bet is to be in the center of the ship. Mm-hmm. So um, find a find a um, a room in the middle of the ship and um, higher up. That when like if you talk to an officer or anything, when there's like a big storm, they'll always tell you to go to like the pool deck, go all the way up into the middle of the ship because the pool is always going to be in the center, in the middle of the ship, all the way on the top. Okay. So that is um, because I was in the middle of the ship and I never had a problem with motion sickness, which is great. I never, I never really felt that the ship mm-hmm. move and the quality of the ship, like the food, the cabins, the, um, I mean, the common spaces, they're all just so clean and mm. comfy. Yeah. And like the crew, the crew members are awesome. Episode 12 was released around the time that the holidays were just about to begin Thanksgiving and Christmas. They can be torturous holidays for anyone trying to lose weight. So I asked Teresa Trella, a health coach to come on and talk about the best ways to eat through the holidays without hating your behavior after the holidays are over. Well, first of all, let's get a little bit realistic. I mean, I I didn't do the calculations, but like in our program, we actually have people fuel their bodies every three hours. So they're eating five to six times a day. Okay. If you multiply that by the number of days between now and new year's, that's a lot of meals. Even if you're only doing the three, right? So are we going to completely blow and, uh, you know, caution to the wind for three days worth of, you know, three dinners, maybe a few more with some parties or that. So first get perspective um, and understand that that's, that's there. You can start to do easy things. Like I just said, what about having a little something to eat every three hours and try and make those things balanced between carb and protein? So that's helping to even out your blood sugar. How about drinking more water? You can do that. When you're actually approaching those days, you can, number one, make sure you don't starve yourself the whole day saying, oh, I'm going to be eating the big Thanksgiving meal, so I'm going to eat nothing. That's right. right? Because I'll tell you this right now, a lot of people who skip breakfast, skip, don't skip breakfast. Don't starve yourself because when your blood sugar goes down like that, the minute you put something in, it spikes up, you get the insulin response, then you're starving again. You're going to, you're going to get into this total overeating thing going on. Try and eat balanced, regular meals and don't starve yourself. So that's the first thing. Second thing is think about the plate. When you look at the plate, you know, we always say we advise like a nine inch plate portion control. A balanced plate will be a quarter of it's going to be your protein, a quarter of it's going to be your whole grains or whatever. And then the other half will be some combination of your fruits and your vegetables. If you limit yourself to that each time and you eat slowly, your brain is going to register you're full and you won't be as inclined to eat as much. So that's the other thing. And if you're going to parties and things like that, have a healthy snack or something before you go so you're not going starving. Mm-hmm. And then when you're hanging out, don't hang out near the food table, right. you know, and focus on the fact that that what makes the holidays so amazing is, you know, the people, the people you're spending time with become present to the people that you are with. Make your choices ahead of time. Have a plan. And and what matters most to you 
is it do you want to be in a, in a food coma during these holidays do you want to get to new year's feeling like so worn out so behind the curve that even doing a resolution is too much the month of november is also national adoption month and so i recounted some episodes i had produced about adoption, in particular, Chris Egan Rudolph, who went through an international adoption, adopting a child from Russia before Putin made it illegal for Americans to adopt Russian babies, and my adoption story that included a conversation with one of four brothers who I never knew I had. I showed the picture, and I'll show it again, of uh, the, the four the five brothers together when we first met at your house uh -huh. and, I met, and I met the brothers. Uh -huh. Coincidentally, everybody had a mustache at the time, <laughs> which we look like the, brothers, yes. the Marx brothers. Right. But um, when you told them that, you know, this whole thing went down, what was their reaction and how did you say it to them? Well, I pretty much, you know, told them the background and then uh, that we had met and, and that we, at that time you had met mom Right. Uh, I, it, it varied. It's amazing. Um, when I told Vinny, who's the youngest, he was on cloud nine until this day. He was like, <laughs> oh, my God, I have a brother. And, you know, we're a family because he's very into family. Um, I told Robert and he thought I was fooling. Then I told Lewis and Lewis, who at that time did not have a very good relationship with my mother or the brothers at all. I mean, it was it was horrible, uh, terrible. Later on in life, uh, him and my mother became extremely close, extremely close, which made her ecstatic. And, uh, you know, then he unfortunately passed from stomach cancer. So um, I, when I told him, he was like not even interested. And then we met and we met in the garage. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of questions. And Lewis was just very, I always remember him as being, you know, okay. Well, I don't know if I want to continue with it. Well, that, you know, and you're going to get that, I think, in an adoption. Not everybody's going to say, hey, great, this is the best news I've ever heard, and, and we're going to be together and all that. We followed up with a, another get-together in which my mother was there, your mother was your, your, your adopted mother was there, your adopted sister was there with her husband and the child, and then we went over to the local ball field and played baseball. She was just beautiful. We needed to form a relationship with her. Um, you know, she had been being raised by others for almost six months. So she didn't know us. We were strangers. We were probably a little scary. Maybe we still are. I don't know. But um, so we had to kind of develop a relationship with her. One of the things that we did with her when, before we were able to take her home, which is kind of, might be interesting, is that we ended up hiring or turned out to be a nurse who would visit her, I think it was two or three times a week, you know, an hour each time, to spend time with her so that she could attach to a person. Mm -hmm. Because some, one of the things that can be concerning, particularly for international adoptions, where there are multiple caregivers, is, you know, attachment. You know, because you're sometimes bringing a baby home could be a toddler home it could you know be an older child home so that's one of the things we did for her that seemed to work out and they ended up doing that for other children through this particular agency so just something to think about in case anybody's going international or just something to consider let's uh, talk about eliza and uh give us uh, uh how she's doing and and how how her life has been 
she's doing great. She really is. She's, uh, you know, a typical, I guess, 20, well, she's a 20-year-old now. She's in college. She's, do, she's doing well, went through all the typical milestones. You know, there are times when she can be difficult and she can, times when she's like an angel. She, you know, this is teenager. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you know, she's 20, but, you know, I think she's still in that older adolescent period. But she's been doing really great and she's just, she's just been a joy to have in our lives. So we've been very lucky. Yeah. Uh, as Eliza was growing up, um, how did you handle the information about uh, her adoption, maybe her family, whatever you knew? What kind of questions did she have? Well, we were, you know, families do it differently. Some families do not tell their adopted children that they are adopted. I don't recommend that at all. Um, we talked about it for as long as Eliza was with us. We just, before she had words, we would talk about it so that she would be comfortable talking about it later. Um, it's difficult for these for these children. I mean, they have the sense that they were abandoned mm. by their biological parents, and I don't know that that's a that's a loss that ever really goes away. But I think you know she, she certainly attached to us as her as her parents, and um, she, so she's she's comfortable talking to us about it and so forth. But I mean, Charlie, I guess, I mean, you'd know. I mean, it's, it's something I'm, I think you probably grapple with your entire life, even if you were raised by a marvelous family. It's, you know, there's that question of why, why me? And, you know, it hurts. The final episode of the season was with a good friend of mine, Denise Van Buren, discussing the power of memory keepers. In this episode, we discussed her newest book in honor of her dear friend and historian, Bob Murphy. Robert Murphy was the noted historian for the city of Beacon in New York and died while he and Denise were working on this latest book about the history of Beacon. He found that way to tell even national stories, but put a local spin on it. And he was tireless in, in what he did. He was always researching, always looking for that next great entry for his newsletter. People like Pete Seeger told yeah. Bob Murphy that uh, he loved to get the Beacon Historical Society newsletter. He couldn't wait for it to come so that he could read it. And I will tell you that there are legions of us who felt the same way. Bob was uh, a, an excellent researcher, a devoted photographer. He was a great storyteller and raconteur. Most of all, he was an excellent, a superb local historian. He served as Beacon's official historian for more than 20 years and as president of the Beacon Historical Society for 20 years. Uh, unfortunately, we lost Bob in July, as you mentioned. Um, he had been uh, putting up a valiant fight against prostate cancer, and regrettably this summer, very unexpectedly, it moved to some other locations, and we lost him far too soon. And um, But combined with his sister and every other member of the Historical Society, I am been determined to keep alive his legacy of historic research into Beacon. So we wrote our first first book together, and that was Historic Beacon. And these are the Arcadia publishing series that you've seen probably for other communities. And this was very well received. Arcadia told us it was one of their best-selling titles that they'd ever had. And it, uh, it really is a good foundational course in Beacon's history. So uh, about five years later, uh, Arcadia approached us about putting together another book. And so we put together Beacon Revisited. And this time we had an opportunity to, um, again, tell these stories that are largely 
lost. You started the program by talking about memory keepers, and I've titled our third book that I wrote with, with Bob, honestly, because it's Bob's works, as Beacon's memory keeper and storyteller, Robert J. Murphy. And that uh, phrase, memory keeper and storyteller, actually comes from Bob's remarks at an event that we held, a fundraiser, in 2017. And he talked about the fact that the very best history is storytelling and being memory keepers of a community's communal sense of place and sense of purpose. And no one was better at that than Bob Murphy. And so in homage to him, uh, I titled the book uh, with that, uh, Beacon's Memory Keeper and Storyteller, Robert J. Murphy. Bob, for 38 years, wrote the popular Beacon Historical Society newsletter. Our historical study has more than 400 members. It's one of the largest historical societies in the state of New York. His legacy truly was uh, telling Beacon's story. So I'm just flipping through and you'll, you'll find information about our Civil War veterans, about our factories, about our trolley, about our ferry, about the Mount Beacon Incline Railways, um, about some of our famous residents, people like James Forrestal. Um, people like Isaac Van Amberg, who most of you will never know that name, but he's really kind of the, the father of the American circus performer. He's got our institutions, our schools, our hospitals, uh, Matty Wan, uh, the, for the criminal institution for the criminally insane, our, our police department, um, major events that happened in Beacon, like fires and, and great years of construction and boom and bust in the city of Beacon. He left no detail unturned or he uh, refused to ever give up and trying to find the, the, the story that he was looking for. Uh, and he always did it with a smile. And if you have never visited Beacon, you should. It is a cool little town and has some great people who live there. You guys know who I'm talking about. Anyway, that is a recap of season two on the Just Saying podcast. So here's what's in store as I move forward in this medium of podcasting. I really want to focus on stories of adoption and fostering. I, I believe it's an area that deserves a lot more attention than it's been getting. And the benefits of the uplifting stories that come out of adoption are stories that we really all need to hear. So... I'm working on producing my first few episodes with this new focus on the podcast, and I'm really excited about it because, well, I will definitely let you know when I get ready to launch. You'll, you'll know I'll get the word out. In the meantime, if you know of someone who has an adoption story or a fostering story that they want to tell, please let them know that I'm looking for stories. That would be a great help to me. In the meantime, a reminder to get the book about my adoption and what it was actually like to come face to face with my birth mother and the four brothers that I never knew I had. You can find it anywhere you order your books. It is a fascinating recount of the unusual circumstances that led up to the meeting of my birth mother. It's an easy read. It has a five-star rating, just saying. And as always, stay safe. Be kind and enjoy 2021. Thanks for tuning in to the Just Sayin' Podcast.